Revelation chapter 4. We are continuing in our series in the book of Revelation. It has been a rich time. It has been an eye-opening time for us in the book of Revelation. And we have just concluded the section, in case this is your first time with us, we've just concluded the section where Jesus is talking to the churches in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. And he is addressing his churches. He's addressing every different season of life, every different circumstance and situation and kind of circumstance that they might face and challenges And he has helped his church see where they need to respond to him, see how they need to change, see where there's need for repentance, where there's need for growth. And now, right after addressing all of his churches, now we have Revelation chapter 4, and that's not accidental. Revelation chapter 4 does something. It looks up. So we're going to look up in response to all these areas we need to grow, all these areas we need to change as a church, all these things that the church needs to respond in, what do we need to do first? And Jesus tells us here in Revelation 4, it's look up. So let's look up by seeing Revelation chapter 4. If you'll stand for the reading of God's word. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I'd heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones. Seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And all around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an angel in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you don't leave us fixed on our problems. You don't leave us fixed on ourselves. You don't leave us that way. You don't leave us that All we see the areas we need to change and repent and turn in, Lord, you you show us what we need to see is you. So God, I pray for each and every one of us here facing different challenges, troubles, sins, Lord, difficulties, tribulations, trials. Lord, each of us who genuinely needs to change, Lord, I pray that our sight would not so much be on ourselves as it would be on you. 
Would you help us all look up? Would you help us all see you? Would you help us all respond to you? God, I pray that you would fill each and every one of us here with your spirit, enable us to hear from you, to see you, to respond. God, enable me to preach by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I was recently reading a Reader's Digest article, and it was talking about how 11,000 injuries a year are being caused, and you're probably doing it every day. You know, he says, it begins by saying, can't walk and chew gum at the same time, then you shouldn't even think about walking and texting. Because the injury statistics are startling, and pretty soon it could literally cost you hard-earned bucks. While you might not recognize that texting and walking is bad, most people still do it. Report from the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons reveals 78% of American adults believe distracted walking is a serious issue, but only 29% owned up to doing it themselves. So get that, 78% said, it's a real problem, those, all those distracted people. And 29% of us admit it. So somewhere in the middle is reality. The issue is our brains, now they say evolve, we know differently, our brains to focus attention on primarily one task at a time. That's how God created us, to focus primarily on one task at a time. It's a phenomenon psychologists refer to as inattention blindness. Inattention blindness. It says, if you think you're able to multitask, try the world-famous selective attention test. Consider this, 60% of people texting while walking veered off course in a study published in 2012. It's only gotten worse since then. At the time, one of the co-authors of the study noted that he and his fellow researchers were shocked to learn how disruptive talking and texting can be one to one's gate. Just recently, a study of the UK reported that writing a text message while walking resulted in significant adaptations to gait. And it's not writing, just writing text that causes problems, it's reading, checking emails, using social network apps, talking on the phone. To varying degrees, they all pour attention away from minding your own safety while walking. According to the NTSB, 5,000 pedestrians were killed and an estimated 76,000 injured in traffic collisions in the U.S. in 2012. That's one death every two hours, an injury every seven minutes. It's not clear exactly how many of those are direct result of distracted walking, but the total rate, pedestrian fatalities, compared to overall road deaths, is getting worse and worse every year. He says, unwilling to give up your right to text and talk, the decision may be soon taken out of your hands. 2012, Fort Lee, municipality of New Jersey, banned texting while walking. Violations come with an $85 ticket. Hawaii, they have $99 tickets in, in Oahu if you're texting and walking. Seems kind of silly. London, England, they found a very slightly more polite way to handle it. A very British way. They just started padding all the lampposts in downtown London. I'm not kidding. This is not a joke. They had so many people running into lampposts as they were walking. They started padding them. Um, Arkansas, Illinois, Stanford, New York State, all are trying to currently pass laws to ban the use of mobile devices while walking. It's a, a problem is inattention blindness. They are so focused on what they're looking at that they're not really focused on what they should see. And, and not seeing that can be harmful to their health. And I, I think that's the case, not just with all of us in texting and looking at things, God designed us in such a way that we can get focused overly on one thing to the exclusion of other things, and we can fail to see what's actually really most important. We can fail to see what we really need to see. So what does John do for us? What does Jesus do for us? He, he reveals to us here, he gets us to look up. That's what's happening here. You know, we're all prone to inattention and blindness. There's all kinds of challenges that we're facing. We have relational issues. We have 
all kinds of problems in our job. We have finances. Where's your gaze? On your problems, challenging issues in your life, grades, your, your, your gaze on things, on your business, on your next post that you're going to make and how many people will comment or read it. Disagreements, passionate preferences, school, spouse, children, finances. You see, our, our, our gaze can so often be on so many different things or maybe on the weather and pollen or whatever it might be and we can get so focused that we have inattention blindness really in our souls. The early church was prone to the same issues. They are humans just like us. God created them just like us. They weren't immune to those things. They didn't have devices I'm sure they would say they were glad of that. They didn't need something else to distract them, but they were distracted by all those different problems they had. And in the first three chapters of Revelation, in chapter two and chapter three, Jesus is addressing many different issues that they are facing, real problems. They are facing persecution from without. They are facing problems within. They are facing temptations and, and all kinds of issues, real issues. They, they might lose their jobs because they're Christians. They might go to jail. They might be put to death. They haven't, there's earthquakes happening. Where will they live? They've been uprooted. They're having all kinds of problems they're facing. There's, there's sexual immorality they have to say no to. There is idolatry. There's all these problems. And so what is Jesus' remedy? It's not to just work harder to begin with. He calls the church to repent. He's addressed complacency. He's addressed apathy. He's addressed every manner of things. Self-sufficiency, pride. What's the solution when Jesus now takes us to the place we need to go most? You see, we don't, we don't, we don't need to be stuck on our problems. When, we, when he calls us to repent, we're not meant to look to ourselves. You see, repentance is turning away from our sins, turning away from our problems, and turning to Jesus. And so what is he doing with the church? He's going from chapter 2 and 3, the church, all their issues, needs to repent, all the problems they have, and he's turning them, saying, look at this. Here is where you need to come. Here is your solution. Here's the reality you need to see. And he says, look up. He's addressing our blindness to the reality that God is above all others, above every problem, above every weakness, above every circumstance you face. What do you face today? What do you have inattention blindness from? Jesus' prescription to our blindness is that we look up. Look up and the first thing we see in this passage, look up and see God is on his throne. That is what we need to remember. When we see our, our sins, the sins of other people, relational issues, whatever those problems, circumstances, situations, they are real. He doesn't ignore that they exist, but the solution to them is not to look inwardly, not to get better ourselves. The first solution that he gives to us, it, we repent, we turn to what? To him. And he says, look up. I want you to see a reality here that's important if you're going to respond, church, to the message that Jesus has for each and every one of us. Christian, if you are going to respond to the conviction that God has for you, if you're going to respond in the face of real issues, real gnarly problems that you're facing, what does he want you to do first? He wants you to look up, get your eyes off yourself. So often we're stumbling around. We're just staring at what we see in front of us. Maybe that's another person. Maybe that's a challenge. Maybe that's government around you. Whatever has you worried or concerned. And Jesus says, no, I want you to look up. 
And so he invites John. What, is it, what does he tell John in the very beginning there? He says, after this I looked, and behold, there is this door, and the voice says, come up here. I'll show you what's really going on in heaven. I'll show you a reality that transcends every other reality. That's what we need to see. This is the reality that transcends that is above every other reality in your own life. What's bigger in your life right now? What seems to be all-consuming? You need to come up here and see the reality. Tripping over things, consumed with what we're dealing with, come into the throne. The throne is made for the Lord God Almighty. It says, he is the one who sits on his throne. And let's not, let's not hurry over that. He's seated. God's not worried. God's not concerned. He's not thwarted by your problems. He's, he's not even challenged by all the problems of the natural world, by government issues. He's not challenged by relational problems, by financial difficulties, whatever conflicts are happening. He's not challenged by all those issues. He's not, it's not that he doesn't care. He's already been addressing them specifically, okay? He's been spe- addressing them specifically, but where is he? He is reigning and ruling over all. He's seated on his throne. He's not anxious. He's not threatened. There's a definite image here of ruling. Do you know that? Do you know that God rules over your problems? He rules over your own sin. He's able to overcome your sin. He's more powerful than that. He's, he's more able than your biggest obstacle, whatever that obstacle is you see in front of you. Whatever problem is all-consuming that's causing your inattention blindness, God is bigger than that. He's on his throne. That's the remedy. That's what the church needs to see in every situation, every season. The church needs to look up and see that God's on his throne. He has absolute authority over all the most powerful beings in creation. That's what we're going to see in a moment is these these creatures that are surrounding the throne. It's this picture of utmost power and majesty and otherness. And where are they all focused? They're all focused on one place, right at the throne. Why? Because they see that he is bigger. All power is subservient to him. That's the image we get. That's the picture we get. These, these four creatures, these, these 24 elders, these angelic rulers, we see all of heaven is looking to God. Why? Because he's on his throne. He's reigning and he's ruling. Do you know that? Do you apply that to your own situation? Are you aware of that? Or do you have inattention blindness? Well, this prescription is to look up, firstly, and secondly, to see who God is that sits on his throne. And that's where the bulk of the time is that, that Jesus, that John spends as Jesus communicates that to him, the bulk of the vision really is on who this God is who sits on his throne. So all throughout, the throne is an emphasis. It's mentioned 12 times in this little passage. And by the way, Revelation, one of the major motifs that goes throughout Revelation is 37 times the throne of God is mentioned. It's uh, 51 times in the entire New Testament. Most of Revelation, most of the entries are in Revelation where they look up to the throne. When you see the problems of the world around us, when, when we're tempted by sin, when we are tempted by complacency or apathy, we need to look up and see the throne. When you're tempted to give up or give in, when you're tempted to say, you know what, it's too hard, I can't do this, what do we need to do? Look up at the throne. Every kind of problem the church faces, the response, the first place we need to look is say, wait a minute, we need to look up and see who God is who sits on his throne. When we were kids, we used to like to argue about whose dad was bigger than the other person's dad. 
And that sounds kind of silly. Or if you get in a fight, you would kind of use that as a threat somehow for the other kid. I mean, as if, as if our dads would really come and beat the other kids up. I mean, I, I hope that doesn't, doesn't occur. But, um, you know, so, well, well, well I, can, I can beat you because my dad's bigger than your dad. Well, like, you know, that's kind of irrelevant. But for us, it made us feel better knowing who it was that we had as a father because we thought he's going to have our back. He's, he's got us covered, and so it gave us confidence. We're meant to have real confidence from a God who really will support us and really comes to our defense, who really is able to help us in each and every situation and challenge and trouble you face, who is able to address every problem that you have. We need to see who this God is. And so the curtain is kind of pulled back. I love, I love Revelation. It's, it's kind of like this movie where the, the curtain is pulled back, this, this stage, and we see God on his throne. And and, and the, the words used to describe him describe attributes and character and nature of God. And, but John's grasping here. He's having a hard time because he has never seen these things before. In fact, I, I doubt any human beyond maybe Isaiah, Ezekiel, and the Apostle Paul prior had, had seen any of these things. And so he's grasping at these realities. He can't figure out, what exactly am I seeing? There's, there's no corollary here on earth to any of the things he's seeing. So he has to speak in language it's like, has the appearance of, because there is no similes here on earth that, that can sufficiently depict what he's seeing. And so he describes them in terms of these jewels. He, he, he uses the most precious jewels of the time that they could, they could think of, that he could know. And he says, well, it's kind of like Jasper, and that was, it was kind of, Jasper was this multicolored stone at times, and it was kind of diamond-like appearance, and and carnelian, and these colors, and he says around the throne there was this rainbow, and it had a, the appearance of an emerald. You see this majestic beauty of God. God is better than any treasure, is what he's showing us. He's worth seeking more than any of the treasures of the world that we might seek, and he is far more beautiful than anything else that we might give ourselves to. And so he tries to get us to see this appearance, this multicolored beauty, glory, the sparkling of God. He, and this is just the appearance of God himself. And then encircling this throne was this, was this rainbow of color, and, and it, had, it was kind of like an emerald, and it gleamed with this kind of green glow. This light was emanating, this multicolored, beautiful light emanating like when you shine light on a gemstone and it reflects, a prism might reflect light in different colors. And you get that, that image that God himself is the light, the source of light. And he is displaying this emerald that's around him. It comes, proceeds from the throne. It circles him. That's kind of the way that the prophet Daniel described God. He, in Daniel 2.20, he says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons he removes kings and sets kings up. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness. And I love this part. And the light dwells with him. And that's the imagery here too that we see in Revelation. The light is dwelling with God. He is, he is kind of manifesting. He is sparkling. He is shining out. He, he is light. He knows what's in the darkness and the light dwells with him. It emanates from him. I, I like how the Apostle Paul, who was taken up into heaven, we don't know exactly what he saw because he, he was not able to write about it. But he says, I was taken up to the heaven. And later in 1 Timothy, 
He says, talking about God who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see to him be honor and glory and eternal dominion. Amen. John wrote of the day later on in Revelation when we won't need the sun anymore because he will be our light. Revelation 22, it says, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. This is who is on his throne, the one who is pure, who is light, who sees into the darkness and, and light dwells with him, who has all wisdom. He is, he is pure, an unapproachable light. What is, what is it depicting that? He shines into the darkness. The darkness has no effect on him. He dispels all darkness. That's what it's showing us. Revelation 22, 5 says, Night will be no more. They will need no lamp of light or sun. For the Lord will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. I love that. The night will be no more. Why? Because he who sits on the throne is light. He dispels all darkness. One day we'll experience his throne, this majesty unveiled. All have been made righteous in Christ who put their faith or trust in him, made clean. One day we'll see him face to face. And he'll dispel all of our darkness. I can't wait for that day. How about you? Lord, let us long for your presence. God, let us long for you more than anyone or anything else. Let that be our prayer, that God might shine on us, reveal his beauty and his might, dispel our darkness. We'll continue looking down at who this is who sits on the throne. It says, around the throne, it describes who it is because of who is around him. It says, around the throne were these 24 elders, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, or 24 thrones, seated on the thrones, 24 elders, clothed in white garments, depicting their purity, golden crowns, the rule, the reign. There's something about whenever you see multiples of 12, 12 in the Bible often was used for some kind of authority. You have the 12 tribes of Israel, there's authority there. You have the 12 apostles, there's authority there. You have the 12 months, the 12 cycles of the moon. I mean, so there's so much in that number that shows the fullness, the authority, there's just ruling. And so we see that this is twice that. In the Old Testament, it was associated with King David setting apart 24 sets of priests perfection of worship before God. And these thrones, they represent maybe a priestly function. But in this case, I think what it's meant to see is these, these are ruling, some kind of ruling angels, some ruling angelic class, because we see them later on in Revelation participating in actually carrying out God's judgment. They are holding the prayers of the saints, delivering them to God. They're helping carry out God's judgment. And these are all powerful beings in one sense, but they're not as powerful as God. And so they look to God, and what do they do? They cast their thrones. In, in this time when a ruler of a city would go before the emperor, they would take their throne and put it before them. And it was an acknowledgement saying, you know, all of my power is nothing compared to yours. I put it at your feet because your power is so much greater. And so these, these ruling elders in heaven who, who rule the heavenly host, they are all oriented towards the throne. And they're saying, God, you are all powerful. Do you see that though? Do you see that God's more powerful than, than you, than others in your life? In situations, circumstances, problems. Look how he describes it in chapter five, in verse five there. It says, from the throne came flashes of lightning. Now picture that for just a second. You're, you're John. 
Have you ever, you ever been in a thunderstorm or you ever seen lightning strike? Uh, this past fall, there was a storm so powerful, it was so close that, that when the lightning struck a tree somewhere behind our house, it, the entire house, it shook, it rumbled, the windows kind of rattled, the floor was kind of rumbling when I got up still to look out and see what it was. Everything was rumbling. Once when I was in high school, we were playing a soccer game out on a pitch and, and there was this thunderstorm we could hear off in the distance and the, the refs made us get off the field and we're all grumbling, complaining, and like, come on, give me a break. And then we wanted to play in the rain and, you know, we were dumb boys. And so both teams, we all huddle under this big, st- on the stone porch and there's this big veranda over it on the side of the, this stately building, that, uh, the school that I used to go to. And, and then the, the, all, all the spectators there, there's probably 100 people packed onto this stone porch and above the porch there was this metal kind of veranda and then um, it had a fire escape that went up to the other floors for the door the dorms were that come down to and we were all about a hundred of us huddled underneath of this porch in the middle of this impending storm and we're like oh it's not a big deal we're joking around we're playing The, the rain comes in and then all of a sudden something made us look up something got our attention and very quickly we didn't laugh We didn't ask to go out in the rain anymore. We were giving our coaches a hard time saying, hey, let's go play in the rain. We stopped that because out of nowhere, lightning struck and it hit the metal veranda and the fire escape above us and it was so deafeningly loud. I mean, if, if, you know, if we had weak hearts, we would have been dead. It was so loud. I've never heard anything so loud, so close. And there was this massive eruption of, of yellow, golden kind of sparks that went everywhere. It was like a 4th of July firework. You know what those really big ones that go, the big golden ones that go right? It was right there, though, right above our heads. And it exploded, and these sparks go everywhere. It was definitely loud, and it was just a few feet above our heads. And in one flash, in just probably a millisecond, we felt this intense heat. We felt it. The air seemed to crackle. It rumbled. Our ears were ringing for a while afterwards. We really couldn't hear each other for a second. We're like, oh, what are you saying? And the air seemed to vibrate with power. Gave us a new sense of awe for the power of lightning and gratitude that we weren't struck dead. And John says, from the throne came flashes, plural, of lightning. And rumblings and peals of thunder. What's that picture? Intense power. Power, electrifying power emanating from the throne. Laying waste everything around it. Able to conquer, able to lay low. This is power being communicated. Flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. And then there's this imagery that before the thrones were the seven spirits of God, the Holy Spirit in perfection. The number seven is just meant to show the fullness and completion, the number of perfections. So we see the Holy Spirit is like a flame around the throne. That must have been a terrifying, awe-inspiring picture. It must have been a humility-inducing sight. This raw power emanating from the holy of holies. He shakes the foundation of all there is. He is holy. His fire burns pure. He is Almighty. You know, the days of Moses, the children of Israel, they saw this kind of storm cloud coming in of God's holiness coming near the mountain, and they didn't want to go near it, and they said, no, we won't even come near there. You come and talk to us, because if we go near there, we'll die. And so John is beholding this. 
What was the effect for the people of Israel seeing God's power like that? They were, they were humbled. I love how it puts it in Exodus. They, they responded by repenting of sin. It was the experience of his holiness and his power and might so they might not sin so they don't worship any other false puny gods. What other gods are you tempted to worship before? What's the answer to idolatry? Seeing that only God is to be worshipped. How, how puny it is to worship any other gods. He's holy. He's not to be trifled with. He takes sin seriously. We look up and see that we we worship him alone because no one else is worthy of worship. That he is more powerful. He's able to overcome any problems, difficulties, challenges. He's able to burn away any sin with his spirit. That must have been the effect for the people in the churches in Revelation who are reading this right after each and every one of them was read to about their issues in their church. Immediately they're ushered into the throne. That, that should be a lesson for us. Immediately when you experience conviction, when you experience challenges, problems, immediately we should go to the throne. See the holy, mighty God. And it says, and before the throne, look in verse 6, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. John, John knew what a sea was, by the way. John was a fisherman on the Galilee. He, he knew what a sea was. And this is, this is so confusing to me, I can't... I can't picture that, you know, talking about a glassy sea. What in the world? And yet what he's describing is, is the whole area around that he sees, this, this vast expanse that he sees around the throne, this endless, it almost looks like a sea, and it's, maybe it's undulating like a sea might, but it's, the sea has sparkling, you know, if you've ever seen a sea sparkle in the sunlight, and so he's seeing this glorious imagery Surrounded by vast, gleaming, glistening, it might have looked like a sea. We don't have it here on earth, but it's wonderful, it's incredible, and it's, it's meant to produce awe in us. He is not like us. He is something other than us. And that is all our source of hope. And then it says around, look down in your Bibles in verse 6, around the throne, right immediately. So you have this picture here of, of God at the center, and then you have the, the rainbow of his presence kind of around that, and then you have immediately after that, you have these four creatures. These four, what seem to be extremely wise, powerful beings, and then around that, these angelic elders. Somewhere in there, the Holy Spirit is surrounding the throne, probably before those four creatures. And it's a little like cherubim and seraphim that are described in Ezekiel and Isaiah. It's, these creatures have aspects of both, and so what John is seeing is aspects of all of these things. Ezekiel chapter 1 and 10, and then the seraphim of Isaiah 6, there's four faces you can read about in Ezekiel 1.10. You can look at the eyes all around in Ezekiel 1.18. They have six wings, and they sing just like Isaiah saw in his image of the Lord, high and lifted up on his throne in Isaiah 6. And they have these six wings, and they sing. We don't know a lot about them, but we do know that these cherubim, they guarded the tree of life after man was banned from the garden. They overshadowed the mercy seat of God and the Ark of the Covenant. They, the seraphim were ones who led worship in the holy of holies. These four living creatures bore God's chariot through the heavens in Ezekiel 1. And here they're standing all around the throne like sentinels. These 
powerful beings. And they take the lead and later on in, in Revelation chapter 5 and 7 and 14 and pouring out God's judgment, they take the lead in helping do that. And yet, they seem to be leaders of this heavenly court. And what are they doing? They're worshiping. What are, the, what are the most closest beings, the ones who are closest to God? What are they doing? They're worshiping. What are we doing? Now, before you go jumping, trying to picture that, you know, what does this look like when there's eyes in them or all around them? I think that's meant to communicate something about what do eyes do, right? Just think for a minute really simply, what do eyes do? Don't try to be overly complex. Don't immediately jump to trying to figure out what does this look like? That is so weird. You know, eyes see. Eyes observe. Eyes notice. Eyes watch. So these, you see these creatures are full of eyes. It speaks to they're ever watchful. They're vigilant. There's some knowing that's happening. They're all kind of they seem to know in every direction. They, nothing goes unnoticed by these creatures, and yet where are they? They are oriented towards God, worshiping him. Now, John's never seen anything like that. There's no category here on earth, and he describes each one of them. says, the first is kind of, it's like a lion. It's not a lion, but it's, it's, it's like that. He's looking for some kind of corollary here on earth, and he's, well, it's like a lion. Fourth one is, second one's like an ox. Third one's, a living creature with the face of a man. The fourth one is like an eagle in flight. Maybe they represent the wild creatures of all of creation. Maybe they, the ox represents all the domesticated animals. Maybe, maybe the, the face of a man represents humanity. The eagle, all the birds of the air, we're not exactly sure, but they seem to represent in some way all the created order of God standing around the throne, worshiping God Almighty. And they have six wings, Communicate something about their swiftness, their speed, their might. What are all these powerful creatures consumed with? What are the four, 24 elders consumed with? What are they all doing? Where are they oriented? They're all oriented into one place. Are they consumed with the problems of the earth? They're going to be used to carry out judgment, but where are they now? They're, they are facing the throne God's bigger to them. They're more concerned with worship than anything else. What does this say for us? I think what it communicates is that Jesus' prescription for our inattention blindness it's, is to look up, to see God who's on the throne, and to respond to him in worship with our whole lives, with all that we are. It says they're continuously singing all around the throne. They, they day and night continuously sing. Why is that? There is this response that God calls us to in the midst of our challenges and problems and trials and in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of even satanic attacks against us. Or some might be put in jail, he told the church then. And yet, what does he want the church to see? He says, look up. See God who is on the throne. See what God is like. See his power, his might, his majesty, his dominion, his purity, his, his absolute light. He's able to dispel all darkness and yet see as well that the appropriate response is worship. Look in verse 8. These four living creatures, each of them with six wings full of eyes, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. 
We need to see that God is holy, holy, holy. He was. He always has been. He currently is ruling on his throne, and he is to come. And really, that's kind of the message of Revelation with who we need to see Jesus as. This is the revelation of Jesus, ultimately, this book is about, and and his place in God's throne. And we see that God who was, and he is, and he is to come. Whenever the Bible mentions three times something, you have to pay attention to it. It emphasizes it to the extreme. The presence of these creatures in this passage is not meant for us to be wowed by these creatures or spend an inordinate amount of time trying to figure out who these four creatures are, what they are, especially who these 24 dollars are, exactly what they do. We don't know. We're not meant to see that. What we're meant to see are these all-powerful beings that represent all of creation, that, that somehow rule over the angelic host. Where are they? They are worshiping God. And they're not drawing attention to themselves. We're not meant to try to figure out all day make up clever allegories for them. But God intends his readers to get this, this view of these astounding creatures devoted to God, proclaiming the greatness of God. And look in verse 9. Whenever these living creatures gave glory and honor, what's the response? These 24 elders, they all responded. In verse 10, they fall down before him, seated on the throne, worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before him. 24 elders then explain that God is worthy because of all he's done. The the four living creatures explain how God is worthy because of who he is. The 24 elders explain how he is worthy because of all he's done. It says, for you, look in verse 11, for you're worthy of these things. You're worthy to receive glory and honor power for because you created all things. Do you know that God created all things? What does that imply? What does that mean? It's really basic. Why does the Bible begin in, in Genesis with creation? Because we need to see who God is. We need to see that we don't rule. Problems don't rule. People around you don't rule. God rules. He's the creator. We can look to him. And so where the Bible began in creation and God ruling and reigning, we need to look and see, okay, that's where it ends is with God ruling and reigning. They say, for you created all things and by your will, his will causes all things to exist. Think about that for a moment. Nothing is greater than God's will. Your will is not greater than God's will. Your coworkers' will, the people who oppose you, their will, whatever challenges their will, is not greater than God's will because by his will all things are, have been created. This vision of God on his throne is an overwhelming scene. Like a precious gemstone surrounded by this, this rainbow-like emerald, these four creatures around them proclaiming holy, holy, holy. These this flashes of lightning, these peals these of thunder, this rolling, this reverberating power. And surely, here's what this church then would have seen. Here's what we need to see. Surely God will judge his people. Surely God will judge his enemies as well. Surely God's able of overcoming all challenges. No created order is greater than the one who sits on this throne. No human, no government is more powerful. No demonic force, no wickedness. Not the devil himself can begin to bear the glory, the majesty, the honor, and the power of God. Seeing God on the throne would let them know that they have nothing to fear from any of their issues. They, they faced trade guilds that said, hey, if you don't come to the temple with us, you won't be out of a job and out of work. And they literally would have been. And then they faced local governments that said, hey, if you keep telling people about Jesus, we're going to throw you in jail. And they would have been. Or they faced the emperor says, if you don't bow down to the emperor and worship me, I'm going to put you to death. And they were. 
but they would have seen that they didn't need to fear. Seeing God on the throne abolishes fear. Those who struggled with feeling like there was other powers would have been encouraged to take hope and look up, see God as all-powerful. He is greater. No evil could remove them from the hand of the Lord God Almighty, the one who sits on the throne. For those who tempted to give in, another challenge that the people in the, in the book of Revelation were facing that we face, they're tempted to give in, to compromise, to say, it's no big deal if we kind of go along with these simple things. And yet, if they look and see the holiness of God, they say, it is a big deal. God does care. He is holy. He dwells in an imperishable light. We shouldn't trifle with sin and compromise. And we see God is holy. He doesn't give his glory to another. We must not worship any other lesser idol. You're struggling with idolatry? How foolish that is for all of us. You know what this vision would banish as well? Is any man-pleasing. Any, any person, what they think of us, as if that's more important, as if that controls our destiny, as if we need to respond and change our actions based on what people think of us. No, God is ruling. He is all-powerful. These are practical implications. This vision of God, this, this God who's eternal, what does that mean? No mere temporal human government, no mere temporal leader, no institution compares. He was, he is, he is forever. It applies. If you're worried about the government, you're worried about what comes next, you're worried about whatever, look up and see God. The emperor Domitian in those days, he, he demanded to be called Dominus et Deus Noster. And that, what that meant was our Lord and God. But he was no real God. This is the one who sits on the throne. And he's worthy of us giving glory to him above all others. He's worthy of honor. He's worthy of praise. And you know what else this vision would have done? It would have been humbling. All that pride and self-sufficiency the church in Laodicea had, they thought they didn't need anything. Well, in the face of this holy God, I don't think they would think that anymore. They would think, I'm unclean. God, would you rescue me? Would you save me? Lord, I need you. I like how Grant Osborne put it when he wrote. He said, we must remember in this period of extreme persecution and testing, the church felt quite powerless. Maybe you feel powerless too. He goes on to say, so the reminder that God is all-powerful would be especially encouraging. Yet John goes beyond the Almighty of 1.8 to emphasize also his lordship over creation. The Almighty One is indeed the Lord God. The church need not fret over the seeming power of the ungodly forces. This morning I got up early and went outside to the back porch just to enjoy a cup of coffee. And I was kind of startled by all the green, first of all, that God was bringing new life and growth. And there was beauty there and and I was listening to these, these birds. There was a cacophony of, of bird noise. I couldn't even actually distinguish each individual one because all these birds were just chirping and tweeting and making all these noises, and it was so loud. I expected to go outside and kind of just relax in the quiet, and I, it, it startled me. They were so loud singing. And it, and it struck to me that what it was is this, this beauty of new life and creation, and they were singing I felt like God was saying, do you hear that? They're, they're singing to me. They're telling of my glory. Can you imagine what, what John saw here? Can you imagine if he saw these things? 
this exalted beauty, this power on the throne. See God who sits there. He's ruling all over the, the world. He's a treasure that's worth living for more than all the riches in the world. He's eternal. He's unshaken by world events and problems. He created everything. Nature won't thwart his plans. And what is he doing here? He's trying to get our attention, and he tries to get our attention every day. Will we look up when you see birds chirping or when you see those things and around you, those evidences of his beauty and wonder? Will you look up and see that God is over all? How will we respond to God? Will we respond to him in worship? Could the band come up right now, and we're going we're gonna to respond in song in a minute.